What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition. And this week, my friends, we have an old pal of mine from the entertainment industry, Mr. Brian Kiley. Uh, Brian, uh, here's the story of Brian. He is and has forever, for 27 years, been a writer for Conan O'Brien, writes the monologues, those great, great jokes in the monologues. And he's been with Conan for a long, long time. And Brian got in touch with me uh, geez, quite a few years ago now as a Stuff You Should Know uh, listener and just reached out and said, hey, uh, me and actually some of the other guys in the writer's room are are big fans of the show and we think you and Josh are great and just wanted to touch base when you're ever out here, would love to go to lunch or something. And that uh, sort of struck a, a new um, kind of email slash uh, online Facebook friendship with Brian uh, I was finally able to meet Brian and a few of the other guys in person uh, a few years ago when he invited me to the set of Conan and out to lunch on the back lot and showed me backstage and toward the offices and has always just been so kind to me. And um, I, I kind of joke to him on the episode um, that he always treated me like a professional peer, even though I certainly didn't deserve it. Because Brian and, and anyone in that writer's room, to me, I just uh, hold on such a pedestal. Um, Conan was always, uh, after Letterman, you know, the Letterman years, my favorite late night show and um, still still remain so today. So always so much respect for those guys. And Brian has always been such a good guy to me. Really one of the nicest guys in show business and a stand-up uh, as well. Really funny stand-up. And we, we talk a lot about that and have a really good conversation about writing jokes 
and uh, he's very open, uh, unlike a lot of comics, about the process and and doing stand up and and writing great setups and punchlines uh, over and over a year after year uh, for himself and for Conan. So we had a great conversation. His movie crush was uh, the 1975 action adventure uh, from John Huston, The Man Who Would Be King, a movie that I had not seen before that I liked very much. So here we go, everyone, with the great Brian Kiley on The Man Who Would Be King. How you doing? I'm okay. How's your little girl? She is great. Uh, you know, I mean, you know the deal. And in fact, you gave me some good advice early on, which was um, the things that you just sort of think you'll remember, you won't. And to like write down as much as you can. That's the only advice I ever give young parents because there's so much. No one is funnier than a five-year-old. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I've been around comedians and comedy writers for years. Still, five-year-olds are hilarious every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because we, uh, I'm trying to teach her about like the rules of comedy and stuff and the rule of threes. And uh, from the very beginning, <laughs> when we would go to the playground, I would do this silly bit where I would... Uh, on the swing, I would act like I was texting someone or on my phone and she would kick it out of my hands. <laughs> Love it. And she, you know, it's like at that age, it's just again, again, again. <laughs> yep. And yep. Uh, I said, I'm only going to do it if you call it the phone bit. And so from the time she was like three years old, she calls everything a bit, like do the phone bit. <laughs> oh my God, that's so fantastic. And then with the again, again, again thing, um, I had to teach her about a bit having legs. I was like, that bit doesn't have legs. She's <laughs> wow. like, what does that mean? I was like, well, some some bits you can do over and over and over and it's still funny. It's some, you do it two or three times and then it's not so funny anymore and that means it doesn't have legs. So now the thing is, come on, daddy, that bit has legs. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my God. Now your kids uh, are both long gone now, right? Yeah, I mean, my daughter's actually home right now, but she's, She's going to grad school, so she'll she'll be going back. You know, she missed out. <laughs> she she graduated in May, but she didn't get to have a graduation and all that stuff. Oh man. So, um, but she'll be going back uh, for her last semester to get out her master's uh, in a couple weeks, and then my son actually is going to be going to law school. Oh wow! So he's moving home for a couple months uh, until he until he, <laughs> he doesn't know which. He's gotten into a few, but he doesn't know which one he's going to yet. So wow, that's great. Until that's sorted out. So yeah, but both my what kind of law is he interested in? Uh, I actually think he wants to get into politics. So, oh boy, I know, I know. I think he's really interested in that. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know. I mean, that's t you know, it's funny because I came out of college and went into comedy, so I I have no moral high ground to sit here with my kids. <laughs> you know, you got to be practical or whatever. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually, I mean, that segues kind of into our first, um, and by the way, the recording is, is going to be fine. He said, Oh, okay. Great. Great. So this is the show we're doing the show now. Oh, we are. <laughs> the show's already started. I am curious. So I know you're from the Boston area. Mm -hmm. Where were you actually born and raised? Uh, I was born and raised in Newton, Mass, which okay. is just outside of Boston. Uh, it's actually touching Boston. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm from, I'm the middle of five kids. Oh wow! And a uh, big Irish Catholic family. And um, then I I went to college. I went to Boston College, 
And then I started doing comedy in, in Boston when I was in college. And then I came out and just did stand up. And then uh, I got hired at Conan. Wow. So you started stand up in, I mean, what would this have been? The mid eighties? Uh, early. Yeah. Early eighties. I Yeah. I graduated in 83. So I started, I guess, 82 or something at 81, 82. And then um, I started getting some <laughs> actual gigs my senior year. Wow. It, it would be for like $30 to go to New Hampshire uh-huh. or something, and, you know, and do 10 or 15 minutes. You know, I, I had so little time. I only had like 10 minutes or whatever. You know, you build it up. And then um, I just came out of college and it was, I kind of, luckily, the comedy boom kind of happened right when I was graduating. Mm-hmm. So I came out and there were all these gigs and I was able to make a living. I mean, a, a meager living, but I was able to make my living. And then um, I was on the road pr- probably about one week a month. So most of the time I was there, there was enough work in Boston because you could uh-huh. go, there were colleges, there were clubs, there were one-nighters. You know, you might drive to Maine one night and do a show and drive back that night. And then the next wow. day you're doing a uh, college in Vermont or the next night you're in Connecticut at a, at a, just a bar or whatever, you know, just, but there was a ton of gigs in New England in those days. So. That's cool. I think I remember listening to the Marin episode. Did you guys overlap there in Boston? Yeah, we actually did open mics together. Oh, wow. Marin That's and funny. I. And then, <laughs> and then I, when I was 25, I was hosting open mic and we had like Louis CK would come as a new comic and right. stuff like that, you know? So yeah. So I, with, Louis C.K. and Dane Cook and Mark Mar like I saw, you know, Joe Rogan and all these people. I That's right. Started he started out as stand up. Yeah. Bill Burr, yeah. Now what uh what uh was your family like? Were they funny? Were you always uh like amidst laughter? Uh my older brother was funny and I think he was kind of my role model and 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 I would I would do bits <laughs> Um, just to make him laugh, you know, um, yeah. I wouldn't say my parents were funny, <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> um, I didn't know that they, uh, I don't know that they, that was a priority, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I feel like you and I, I think we were always trying to make our kids laugh. I don't yeah. think, I don't think my parents, it ever occurred to them. Hey, I should try to make my kids laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of the same. And they weren't overly serious. It just. It never occurred to them, probably. No, I think it's a generational thing of, yeah, yeah you know. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, it's funny because my younger brother went to Harvard and he was the smart one. And I think early uh-huh. on, I was like, oh, my little brother's smarter than me. <laughs> so I had to kind of carve my own niche, you know. It's, what? How did your parents feel about your career? Well, I think that they they always knew I was this comedy nerd. Mm-hmm. And that I love comedy. And, and I think that even as a little kid, like they'd have company over and I'd have some jokes for them, like from a joke book or whatever, you know what I right. mean? And I think they were kind of like, I, I don't, <laughs> I think they were kind of resigned to it in a way of like, oh yeah. But I mean, I could make them laugh, which, which helped. Um, but I, I don't think that they were like, oh, we can't wait till our kid goes into comedy. Right. <laughs> were you were you listening to like comedy albums growing up and stuff? Was it something yeah. you always kind of had your eye on? Yeah, I was. And there was a sh- when I was a teenager, there was this guy named Kenny Mayer in Brookline, Mass, which actually is where Conan's from, 
who had this radio show and it was from like like 11 to midnight or midnight to 1 a.m. But I remember I wasn't, I was supposed to be asleep yeah. and I'd be listening in my radio in my little transistor or whatever. And he would play whole, whole comedy albums. He'd play like half of an album and then have some commercials and then play another half of another album or whatever. So I would stay up secretly and be listening to Bill Cosby albums or Bob Newhart albums or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I just love that stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I did the same. I mean, uh, I think I, I had a George Carlin album. And of course, Bill Cosby himself was just sort of a life-changing uh, record for me. Um, like I'd never had a comedy album that I listened to over and over and over and memorized. And uh, I remember when I finally saw, it was years later when I saw the actual performance on HBO, it really freaked me out as something I had listened to dozens of times and pictured in my head as a certain way. Sure, and I remember sure. actually seeing it was, was weird. Right. That's so interesting. And, you know, I saw him, I got to see him perform live when I was in my early twenties and you could just see almost that, like the technical skills that he had, you know? Yeah. And he did this whole bit about how, how your memory, as you get older, it goes from your head down really basically to your ass. Uh -huh. And he'd say, he'd go, he'd leave the room, he'd go in the other room, couldn't remember what he went in there for, came back, and as soon as he sat down, it would occur to him, oh, that's what I was looking for, you know? <laughs> so the, he was able to weave that into his set uh -huh. by, you know, he'd walk around, talk about something else, and go, what was I going to talk about? And sit in the stool and go, oh, now I remember. Right. And, and it was such an ingenious callback, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's also the thing of, you know, like I... I loved Woody Allen and I loved Bill Cosby and it's so hard. You know, you kind of have to keep that to yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's you know? uh, both very problematic individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that sucks, you it know, because Bill, Bill Cosby himself was a big part of my childhood and, you know, I can't listen to it now without thinking like what a, what a creep he is. Absolutely. And it's, it's so disappointing because you, you know, so for so many of us, we had him on such a pedestal, you know? I know. And it's like, wait, what? You know? Yeah. When your heroes are, are exposed like that, it's um, it's tough, you know? Yeah. Especially it wasn't when it wasn't someone got drunk and did one bet. It's like, no, this is a 40-year <laughs> series of awful, things, yeah. you know, heinous Yeah, things. not hard to make up your mind about yeah. how you feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> So you met Conan, like, what, 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 tell me that story. Okay, well, this is, this is a little bit insane. So uh, Conan, I, I grew up in Newton, and Conan grew up in Brookline, which are adjacent towns. And we actually did the Google Maps one day, and he grew up exactly four miles from me. Wow. And we went to the same Sunday school when we were little kids. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so I was in his brother Luke's class, and he was in my brother Dan's class. Luke and I would sit, it was like a Monday afternoon, you know, and, and we were taught by nuns. And before the nun would come in, Luke and I would talk about the football games the day before, which is, right. it's just hilarious because we'd be doing the same thing now. <laughs> you know what uh -huh. I mean? Like 50 years <laughs> later, it would be like, oh, we'd be having the same conversations that we had then, you know? Yeah. So I knew who Conan was. And then my brother went to Harvard with, in the same class as Conan. 
So he would, when I was in college, he would show me, he'd go, oh, remember that guy Conan O'Brien? And he would show me uh, the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah. That Conan was the editor and uh, the president or whatever he was. And I'd read these really funny things and from, uh, so, and then when he started working on SNL and The Simpsons, I kind of followed his career to some extent. And it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing is I hadn't seen him since we were little kids. So I would have walked by him on the street and not known who he was. Yeah, but I knew his name and I was aware of of his success and stuff. So when they announced Conan's going to take over for Letterman, I was kind of like, "Oh, I kind of know that guy," <laughs> you know? Right. Wow. Um, and then some friends of mine got hired at Conan. Uh, my friend Tom Agna and Chuck Sklar and Louis C.K. who were all Boston comics. And then um, somebody got fired, and they were looking for somebody to write his monologue. And I used to. At that time, I was writing a lot of topical jokes in my act. So I'd go uh-huh. through the paper every day. It's funny because there's no internet. <laughs> so right. I feel like I'm 100 years old. But I'd go through the newspaper and I would uh, write jokes from that and I would do them that night on stage. And so I was so used to writing topical jokes. So I wrote some new ones, but I also put some jokes from my act. Cause yeah. I, looked at some new, I just sent them a packet of like 50 jokes. And then they um, called and said, yeah, okay, you start tomorrow. Wow. And the show was so shaky then, uh-huh. you know. Um, so I had these 13-week contracts. And they were constantly, you'd be reading the New York Post or the New York Daily News, and there'd be rumors of who was going to take over for Conan. <laughs> like, right. Conan was going to be fired and they got to take over for him. And then um, the show just kind of slowly built and slowly built. And then when we started getting uh, Emmy nominations, that kind of gave us some credibility. Uh-huh. Um, but it was a long time before we felt kind of secure, like, oh, I think we're okay here, you know. Um, but yeah, and then so as in March, uh, I'll be there 27 years. Wow, that is unbelievable, man. Uh, I was an early adopter. I mean, I was a Letterman guy growing up. I mean, as a kid, I watched Carson, of course, because sure, that's sure. just what you did. Yeah. And he was, you know, just unbelievable. And I, I learned so much about um, comedy, I think, from watching Carson. And then had have an older brother, you know, a few years older. So that's usually the entree. Like he goes to college and says, oh, you got to start watching David Letterman. Yeah. And then he said, oh, there's this new guy, Conan O'Brien, you got to watch. It's really great. It's right up your alley. And so I started watching Conan. I mean, what what was the that first year? He so he started in September of ninety three, and then I started in March of ninety four. Yeah, I mean, I was I was in college then, and I can't say that I started in ninety three, but I bet you anything, it was ninety four. It was pretty early, right? And um, it was just sort of perfect being the age that I was then in college. I felt like Conan was a the late night host for my generation. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And really just sort of in as much as I love Letterman still, he was still a little bit above my generation. Um, and Conan just, I don't know, man, there was always that connection. And I, I think it's amazing. I think it speaks to your talent and also to his loyalty. I know he's a pretty loyal guy. He's, he's really a great guy. And it's so funny because so many times would have a meeting and it'd start the meeting and everyone's in there, all the writers are in there. And he'd have a five-minute conversation with me first about 
some Boston sports thing. Like, okay, what happened last night? <laughs> and whatever. And right. everyone else is like, ah, <laughs> these guys. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's, what a, he's a great what was guy. Av- like, I think people would love to know about what a day is like, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the prime of the show, what is the, what is the day like for a monologue writer for, and I guess it was, it was you and Rob Kuttner sort of as a team for a while, right? Yeah. He, he, well, he didn't start until we were out in LA. Yeah. So he wasn't part of the New York shows, but he came out here and he's a joke machine, that guy. Yeah. So funny. What, what used to happen in the old days, I mean, it's still, it's shifted a little bit, but, in the old days, I'd come into work and there'd be a stack of newspapers on my desk. All right. And you go through and you just look for the premises and you just try to find stuff that Conan will joke about. You know, if if there's a plane crash or something, when <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. the big story is some kind of tragedy that we're not going to do anything about that. Sure. But it's usually about, okay, what's the president doing today? What is... Is there some celebrity in the news? Is there some, you know, I think in the early days, there was a, we did a lot of celebrity stuff, but I, I think there's less, less of that now for whatever reason, but mm-hmm. um, you'd find areas that you go, okay, you know what? There's something funny about this. And, and you kind of write down the topics that you thought were good to explore. And, and sometimes it would be like an obscure story, but he, he didn't like to focus on those. He wanted, he wanted us to talk about the big stories for the most part, pick out the stories and I'd write a bunch of jokes and then I'd get together with the other guys, the other monologue writers and would kind of pool our jokes. And like how many jokes, when you say a bunch of jokes, would each of you on a daily basis, write? on a, every day I'd write about 40. Wow. But (laughs) it's amazing. I'd write about 40 and he would do two of them. on Uh that. So, 38 bad, bad jokes. Not bad jokes, though. You know, it's like, that's why these, I mean, that's why these shows are so great is because they pull together, you know, hundreds of jokes and tell, you know, 12 of them. Yeah, no, that's true. And 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 some sometimes you have to get the bad ones out first to kind of get the juices flowing, too, you know. Yeah. Um, so in the morning, I'd, I until like 11 or 11.30 or so, I'd probably write about 15 or 20 and then would pull them with the other guys and um, we'd um, read through them. And it might be like sometimes someone else's joke might trigger a different idea for you. You might go, Oh, instead of that way, how, what if we did this instead or whatever? Right. And then we'd give him the jokes. Uh, and then he would mark the ones he'd like and say more on this or more on that. And then we'd write some new ones and then we'd go down and meet with them. And he'd read through the new ones and pick out the ones selected. Then he'd read through ones he liked from the first batch and see if uh-huh. they still hold up. And pretty much that was kind of... He'd, so maybe there's 10 or 12 from there. And then he's like, okay, so we'd put all those on cue cards. And then, uh, you know, say it's the president's birthday or something. He'd be like, oh, we don't have a good joke on this. Right. We, we might go back and, and try to have some last minute Hail Marys there. Yeah, um, for, and then we get in the cue card meeting and have all the jokes that he liked earlier on cue cards, and then a couple new ones, and then he reads through them with Andy and our uh, our head writer and our and uh, our producer, and we're all there, and we pick out the jokes at work, and then we pick the order, and then he goes and does them. So, it's, wow! And there are times, there's a, well, a few times where 
you know, now with this show, we go out at 4.30. In New York, it was 5.30. But there were times at the last minute to come up with something that they'd like. Mm -hmm. And it was it was like Homer and in the bottom of the ninth or something, you know, uh -huh. like, it's like, boy, at the very last second, we got that one in there. And then he went out and did it five minutes later. And wow. it, it actually is nice having that kind of immediacy of, you know, you write it and then he goes out and does it that, that, you know, that afternoon or, you know, a few minutes later or whatever. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I imagine the monotony is uh, pretty intense. Yeah. And being a joke machine, there's a lot of pressure yeah. to be funny every day. And we all have bad days as humans. 
and t- days where we feel terrible or where you have personal things in your life. Yeah. Like how hard is it to, to cast that aside and trudge on? Uh, that's a, that's a very good question. I, you know, it's funny because I never got migraines until I started working there. <laughs> really? Yeah. And usually people start getting migraines when they're in their teens or their twenties. And I wasn't, it wasn't for me. It was like in the late nineties. I would say I was in my late thirties when I started getting migraines. Oh boy. Um, and yeah, you do have those days. I, I do think sometimes you do have stuff in your personal life or whatever, but sometimes it can actually be a nice escape, actually, you know? Yeah. I mean, that definitely happens. There are times when you're tired, your brain is tired and you're like, I just don't have it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That happens sometimes too. But, um, you know, but then sometimes you're like, it, it, took you know sometimes you're like oh it took me a while to get going like my morning batch was terrible and then you know and i've had sometimes i've had my morning batch was terrible and the afternoon batch is terrible and then the la- the third batch it's like oh i finally kind of came alive there and saved it at the last minute you know so sometimes yeah you get that little adrenaline boost or something like that um but you know luckily i'm you know you have other people to work on too so hopefully you know right if, you if can you're lean on each other day, yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's a job where you can't uh you're not allowed to have writer's block um you're kind of probably not allowed to like call in sick if you don't feel great i mean you have to you have to yeah. be that joke joke factory that's just an amazing thing to do for 27 years well it is funny because now it's just now it's just laurie kilmartin and me writing the monologue and oh, she's great yeah. she is great and she's so funny but it's that thing of you know, we can't have a bad day. <laughs> you know, yeah. one of us has a bad day. It's a lot of pressure on the other one, you know. Um, but before we've had three or four or even six monologue writers. So as the shows, you know, shows kind of changed. Now it's only a half hour and we have right. writers and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, there are those times where you're like, oh. <laughs> and also sometimes what you're looking at in the news is is bleak you know i remember when i was first yeah. there the first month or two everything was fine and then we had the oklahoma city bombing yeah and i think jackie onassis died at like the same well like right around the same time and like every story you're like oh we can't touch any of this stuff and you know how they have in the um usa today they have the little state by state uh-huh. <laughs> so Conan would come out and be like hey did you hear about this Comptroller in St. Paul, Minnesota. Like, You'd have to drill down. What? what are you talking about? No, we no one's heard about this. Right. You know, no one cares, you know. But we couldn't talk about the big stuff. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. You gotta you gotta drill down and find yeah. the nuggets in yeah. there when the national news is so bleak. Yeah. Especially lately, you know. I mean, we're recording this in real time, you know, a, a handful of days after the the Capitol riots. And uh Jeez, sometimes it's just hard to find humor anywhere. Oh my God, yeah, and especially when someone's killed or something, then it's like, uh, you know, um, I remember when I was first there, we had some joke about a guy fell into a vat of cheese, <laughs> <laughs> and it was the joke was like he's getting better with age or something, <laughs> like that. but you know, the guy was seriously hurt, so we couldn't do a joke about. It. But like a right. month later, Conan would be like, like we'd be having a bad day, and Conan would be like, "How's that guy in the cheese doing?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure in that writer's room, you know, 
you bat around all manner of inappropriate jokes and just uh, sometimes you just have to get those out. <laughs> and also sometimes, I, you know, sometimes shockingly th- that you said one as a joke for the room and it's on the show. You're like, wait, he picked that, he picked that right. one. I was, I was actually kidding. You know, um, I, I, we used to do this thing called staring contest. Uh-huh. Do you remember seeing those where, Conan and Andy would have staring contests. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those, that was one of my favorite bits. Oh, my God. It was so great. And whoever would break. So behind Conan, he would have these things to come out to distract Andy to get him to break. So it would be uh-huh. all these sight gags. <laughs> and it was an amazing bit because it was a silent bit for like five minutes on national TV. And it was yeah. really funny. Uh, Louis C.K. came up with that. So I was home, I think, on a paternity leave. And I was submitting jokes remotely, and I submit a bunch of sight gags. And I had one that I was just kidding. It was just to make the room laugh. I don't, I don't know if this is too inappropriate for your show here. But it was a quarterback going under center and then pulling out a gerbil. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear I was just kidding. And then that night, that was the closer, and no one was more <laughs> shocked than me. <laughs> Hey, I got to turn off my fridge real quick. Hold sure, on. Sure. Hit this world up. You know, it's so funny because I was so hoping uh, that I would get to throw to a commercial for me undies. <laughs> oh, we could do that. <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the things I always appreciated about your stand-up too, which I love, which is, and I've told you this before, but, you know, there are all kinds of different ways to do comedy. And, and I think when the... I hate the labels, but alternative comedy comes around and these weird storytelling bits, which can all be great. But I always appreciated just your dedication to the craft of the joke and writing a joke with a setup and a punchline. You get in, you get out, and it's just (laughs) so clean. And uh, I mean, there's it's just such an art form. It's really hard to write a joke. And you've written tens of thousands of them, probably hundreds of thousands of them over the years. It's just amazing. Well, I do think it's, I think early on, I, you know, I tried sort of Seinfeld-esque sort of observational things. I tried to do Uh impressions. I tried to do impressions. I was the worst impressionist in the world. It's like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Who did you do? I I tried to do like Peter Falk or whatever, Uh you know, it was so bad. Um, But I think Early on, I realized it's like, oh, you know what? I'm not good at this, and this is what I'm good at. Let me just do that. Mm-hmm. And because I kept trying to write longer bits, it's, you know, if I do 45 minutes, if I like do a headlining show, that's 135 jokes. Wow. That's a lot of jokes. To, and when I had my uh, Comedy Central half hour special, you know, they have it on the, they have a uh, um, teleprompter. Uh-huh. So I put all my stuff on bullet points in the teleprompter, and they go, You've got 99 jokes. That's a record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to talk about just the simple nuts and bolts of just memorizing an act that long with that many jokes is astounding. It's, you know, it's funny. I mean, when you're doing it all the time, you just, you're just so used to it, you know? Yeah. But there are times, absolutely, where, especially coming out to L.A., you always, every show you're doing short sets. And so when they go, okay, we want you to headline this day and do 40, it's like, oh, I haven't done 45 minutes in like three years, you know? Yeah, that's And I just tough. spend all day writing out my set and going through, you know, and it's, yeah, there are times where I'm like, oh, I forgot that chunk or whatever. I, 
I try to keep stuff like, okay, here are my high school jokes and here are my jokes. Yeah. I try to keep them okay. together because otherwise um, you get lost. But also you have to keep them in the same order. Like if you do two or three shows in a night, uh-huh. by the third show, you're like, did I do this joke already? <laughs> you know? So Yeah, that's got to be scary as hell. Oh, it's and you do see comics repeat a joke. Mm-hmm. And it, there is that feeling of, oh, have I done this joke before? And it, when they laugh, you're like, okay, phew, I didn't. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, that is a terrifying feeling. Oh, I imagine. Uh, one of your favorite jokes uh, of mine, and I can't, I'm, I'm hoping you can remember it, but, and I know it's like saying to do one of your hundreds of thousands <laughs> of jokes, but it was a joke about um, your wife, having sex with your wife and a, and a fireman, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the joke about we 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 tried to spice things up. We tried some role playing, right? So I dressed up as a firefighter, uh-huh. and my wife dressed up as someone who didn't really feel like having sex with a firefighter. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh man, I'm glad you remembered it because I couldn't. That is one of my favorite jokes i told that joke to friends giving you credit of course for years after i heard it uh there's just something about it man it just kills me (laughs) because it takes you know i think that's one of the best kinds of jokes in that it takes you in a different direction from where you start in such a brief amount of time uh there's that little bit of misdirection that uh and, and it's a surprise. The punchline is a surprise. You think it's going one way, and it's a three sentence joke, and it takes you in another direction. It's just, it's brilliant, man. Thanks. I love it. <laughs> I would never retire that joke from my act <laughs> if I were you. That's one of the great jokes. Well, thanks. Uh, do you walk around every day? Like, is it hard to turn off that switch, uh, or are you constantly? Is that annoying? Yeah. Or are you constantly oh, looking yeah. at life oh. through that lens? Oh, it's. Yeah, my loved ones hate me. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, there's constantly that, is this something or is this funny? And not on purpose. Like you're just out doing your life and then something strikes you and you're kind of like, and I used to keep a little notepad and I would kind of jot something down. And now yeah. I just have my phone and I just put something in the phone if I, you know, I have that Evernote uh-huh. and I'll put something if I think of a joke. Um, but yeah, I mean, still, it's, I still have that thing of I love when I come up with a, a new joke that I'm excited about that I can't wait to try. You yeah. Know, I see certain comics where they have not changed their act at all in 20 years or something. Mm-hmm. And you think, and even if it kills, it's like, isn't that boring to just like, you know, if I do 135 jokes, there's times where the, my whole set, I can't wait to the one new joke in the middle. You know what right. I mean? And that's the fun part of, and so many times you're wrong. You think, oh, wait, they hear this. And then it's like, oh, well, they heard it. <laughs> How disappointing is that when you have a joke that you really love, one of your babies that just doesn't fly? It's, you know, especially one that you're excited about. And sometimes a joke can be, it's too much of a reach for it. Or it's like, it's, you think it's clever, but it's a little too contrived or something, mm-hmm. uh, or it's too obscure. And also sometimes it's a thing of you do a joke a hundred times and it works 99 and there's that one time it doesn't and you want to go, wait, what, ha- what what's wrong with you people? <laughs> you know, I want to say. 
Yeah. I mean, is the audience always right? No. Or do you walk out of there sometimes saying like, nah, they, that shit was funny and they didn't get it? Most of the time they're right. Uh-huh. But there are those exceptions where you go, no, I've done that joke 500 times and it's always worked. That's not me. That's on you, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are, <laughs> you can get a dumb crowd or you can get, you know, whatever, right. whether too drunk or whatever. But for the most part, there's, most of the time, I think, oh, wait till they hear this. And if it doesn't work, I'll look back on it three months later and go, yeah, they were right. That wasn't uh, that wasn't very good. <laughs> well, you just briefly mentioned people getting too drunk. What um, I know every comic has their own uh, heckler sort of defense plan. How did you handle that over the years? What was your move? Uh, yeah, I would I I um, I would try to ignore as much as I could, because sometimes what would happen is you come out. I would always record my sets in the old days. I would now I record them on my phone, but in the old days I would record them on a tape recorder. And sometimes somebody in the front row says something and nobody else can hear it. And so you lash out and suddenly the audience is kind of like, why is he just suddenly lashing out this guy? You know? Oh, interesting. So I've kind of learned that if, but if, if it's something that everybody's aware of, mm-hmm. um, and something my friend Barry Crimmins taught me of, try to point out in what way they're being a jerk, you know? Right. Um, so if you can kind of flip it on them, but um, I think I got, I think I get less heckled now uh, just because I'm older. I think there's a certain, like, it's almost like, I think sometimes they're like, I don't want to be heckling my dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if we're both 25 and they're heckling, it's one thing, but if they're 25 and, you know, and they see me it, like, I think there's a little bit of respect. Yeah, I guess for, I think a little bit of respect for for my age or whatever, you know? Well, in your career, like I imagine like people know who you are when they go to see you and what kind of an asshole is going <laughs> to heckle the guy who's been writing like some of the greatest monologues of the past 27 years. That's, well, you'd have I, to be a real shithead. <laughs> Occasionally there is a real shithead, but yeah. Um, um, but I do think you, um, and I also think I work in better rooms now too. I think, you know, when you're in the sure. beginning, you're in every dive and every, you know, and also sometimes you're in rooms where they didn't come for comedy. They don't want comedy. They're at a bar and oh they go, okay, we're forcing the show on you. Right. <laughs> and there are sometimes where it's like, I think I'm the rude one. This is a couple that's on a date that yeah. I'm like, nope, sorry, I'm here. You can't talk now, you know? wow man that is so cool i mean i love this insight uh i haven't had a bunch of stand-ups i mean i've had a handful but um i I don't know it feels like people don't talk about it that much and i always love that you're kind of open to talking about things i I have to say i love i mean it's one of these things i do love stand-up and i love talking about it because it's you never really master it in a way you know it's yeah it's always a challenge it's it's that the challenge never ends really yeah. And, and just on a personal level, like you started, I think you got in touch with me many years ago because you listen to stuff you should know. And um, some of the other guys, Rob uh, Kuttner, who is originally from Atlanta, one of your monologue writing partners yeah. listened and Dan Cronin yeah. from the show listened. And all of a sudden, like I'm this guy who never had a job in show business and sort of lucked into this weird career and I'm getting, uh, I'm getting these heroes of mine 
that work on the show that uh, all, of, all of a sudden you're getting in touch with me saying you like my work. And it always just meant so much to me how uh, you in particular, uh, and I, I don't know if you got the book that I sent you I yet. I did, I got it yesterday. And the, part of the inscription was, you know, thank you for always pretending like we were professional peers. <laughs> uh, that always meant so much to me and was such a big boost for me and how I felt about, um, did I deserve to even do this job? Oh, please. I mean, the amount of hours you guys have logged, it's, I mean, how many thousands now? I mean, it's incredible. Uh, over 1,400 episodes for Stuff You Should Know. Wow. And it's it's such a great show because it's it's funny, but it's also you I've learned so much and it's entertain you know, and it's never dry. It's, it's, uh, and you guys have a great chemistry. I don't know. Um, it, I, I love it. I think it's, it's really been my favorite podcast for years. So. Thanks, man. I mean, it always meant so much to me that you, uh, kind of, uh, treated me with such kindness. And when I went to LA that time and, uh, you invited me out for lunch and gave me the backstage tour and, uh, that, I mean, I was like a kid in a candy store, you know, it was just amazing. So oh, big thanks, my friend. Oh, please. absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. Do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, the man who would be King? Sure. Sure. Now, did you get to see it? I did. Of course. Um, this is the first time I've actually seen this movie, uh, from 1975 directed by the great John Huston, um, written by John Huston and I think Gladys Hill, uh, from the Rudyard Kipling, uh, novella it was like a short yeah. novel mm -hmm. um where did this movie come into your life and why is why is this your movie crush uh my friend barry crimmins who was sort of my mentor my comedy mentor he he showed it to me and i guess i was in my early 20s mm -hmm. and i remember my older brother had mentioned it to me when you know there's so many movies you know my older brother is seven years older and my older sister is nine and a half years older Mm -hmm. So when I was, you know, 12 and 13 or whatever, they were going to see these movies in the 70s that had all this cachet in my mind of like, oh, I'd like to see that, you know, but I yeah. couldn't go or whatever. And then a lot of them, as I've gotten older and watched them, you know, at Blockbuster or Netflix or whatever, I'm like, oh, that movie wasn't very good. I've been waiting 40 years to watch that movie and it was terrible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so many don't hold up. But this this was this really holds up because I, it's it's such an ingenious story where Kipling. Uh, I read the short story, uh, the novella, or whatever it was, this week to kind of oh cool for this. But um, the movie is very true to to the. I mean, the the movie is very true to the story, and uh -huh. um, the way he plants these seeds that they all pay off is is so remarkable to me, and. I also love my favorite thing. You know, I used to watch, you know, when I'd watch Batman as a little kid uh -huh. and when you watch James Bond, there's always this elaborate way they're going to be killed and whatever. And then they get out of it. And it's always whenever so many movies where the hero's in danger and the way they get out of it is so sort of, they just shoot somebody in the head or, whatever, right. or beat them up or whatever. It's so lame. And this one in particular, where you can have spoilers here, right? It's a what do you yeah, think? sure. Where they're they're crossing the mountains, and then there's that the giant crevice, and they can't get across, and they're yeah. gonna die, and they just sit there and they start talking, they're telling their old stories, 
and they start laughing and they laugh so hard that they cause the avalanche. <laughs> yeah. And the other girl, I just thought that was the most ingenious way of getting over an obstacle and a way of getting out of a situation I've seen in any TV show or any movie. I just yeah. thought that was so brilliant, you know? Yeah. Um, just to sort of overview for the listeners, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about two uh, former uh, English soldiers who basically are turned into a con artist, like a con artist team, a couple of grifters, uh, Danny Dravat and uh, one of the great names of all time, Peachy Carnahan <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> is Michael Caine's character and Sean Connery, just like peak handsome Sean Connery uh, in this movie. And he, uh, they decide to leave India and uh, basically go to the Middle East and grift these, um, and this is, I guess, uh, late 1800s? Yeah, yeah. And they decide that a plan for them would be to go and sort of grift these people in the Middle East who they see as as savages into thinking they are uh, kings and eventually gods and 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 looting them and leaving and uh it's it's kind of this crazy plan that that kind of works until (laughs) like the very end it's pretty remarkable it really is and the way it's so it's so plausibly done and the way that they keep every scenario where they get in danger there's such an ingenious way that they get out of it and win yeah uh it's it's just so cleverly done that's what i that's what i love about it um, and they're such great actors, you know? Oh man. I mean, what a pairing. I know that earlier, uh, Houston tried to develop it with Bogart and Gable. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Clark this. Gable is the, uh, Sean Connery role and then Bogart is Michael Caine's role. But when you see these guys, I mean, their chemistry is great. Um, it's not the movie that I thought it was. I, I think I thought it was a bit more of a Lawrence of Arabia type of thing. Right, right. I didn't know how funny it was going to be. Um, but I think he he hit just the right tone. I think it, if it were remade today, it would be way bloodier and also way more um, played for laughs, kind yeah. of in the wrong way. Yeah, it would be like Owen Wilson and The Rock or something, and <laughs> probably a lot of dumb jokes. But I think they hit the comedy just right in this movie. I always felt this way that really good dramas, because they set the tension up so well that that the comedy always pays off because you're not expecting it and they've created yeah. this tension and you're nervous. And then it's like, it's such a release, you know, and also you're not looking for a joke there, you know? Um, yeah. But I did think that has a bunch of funny lines in it. Yeah. That's, I just love the, uh, the elaborateness of it and how cleverly it's, it's, it's constructed, you know? Yeah. And it's a movie, even though it's um, at times it feels like it's going to an inevitable conclusion but for a lot of the movie, you're kind of guessing what's going to happen to these guys. And is there, like, for a while, I was wondering, is there any treasure? Like, I kind of thought the conclusion was going to be they go and they do sort of install themselves as a king and his, I guess, sort of right-hand man. But there's not going to be any treasure. Right, And right. it'll be all for naught. But there is treasure. Uh, and they discover that. That's one of the funny uh, bits is when... Sean Connery holds up that ruby yeah. and he's like, look at the size of this ruby. And then Michael Caine holds one up. It's like three times as big. Yeah. And it's just, a, it's a great little sight gag. Especially for those guys who are like pickpockets and whatever, suddenly they're in the yeah. wealthiest room and it's there, you know, it's so great. Uh, it's beyond their wildest dreams. Um, it's so awesome. 
Well, and it looks amazing. Like, uh, I know we sound like old guys to say like, they don't make them like this anymore, but they truly don't. When you see these, these scenes with 300 extras and 50 camels and 30 goats and, uh, all the yeah. costuming is just so real. And, and everything would be CGI now or whatever. And, and yeah, there, of course. It is like, look at how many extras there are. Look at how there's a, yeah, it's incredible. It did remind me of Lawrence of Arabia a little bit, except uh, just for that big sort of sweeping, you know, this is John Houston and it's in Technicolor and it's just, it's, it's just a real movie. It feels like something not made in 1975. I know. I'm actually surprised it didn't get more acclaim awards wise or whatever, but yeah. And there's, there's a, you know, Michael Caine is great and there's all these little side stories. So he, there's a story he told, he was in some movie some terrible movie in the 70s. And it might have been The Swarm or something like that. Uh-huh. I'm not sure which movie it was, but they asked him about it. And he said, you know, I, I haven't seen the film. I hear it's dreadful. But <laughs> I have seen the house that it paid for. And it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's just such a legend. And he's uh, and this is sort of peak Michael Caine as well um, in the mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, so funny and that that just he he's an actor who uh i know he had a harder time getting work at first because of his accent and he was always sort of told to be to put on a bit more of the posh english accent but um that no one has a better speaking voice than michael Caine. oh i know oh my god <laughs> i love that scene is it road trip what's that scene where those two guys have the dueling michael Caines? oh i don't know was that oh it's a great <laughs> These two British guys are getting, are getting, and one guy does a Michael Caine. He does a really good Michael Caine, and the other guy's uh-huh. like, "No, no, no!" And then he does his Michael Caine, and you're like, "Okay, you win." It's so, is it even better? <laughs> yeah, it's even better. It's so good. Uh, I'm blanking on um, their their names, but it's so good. Um, but I was did some research. So the woman that Sean Connery tries to marry in the movie, mm-hmm. Rockton, so that's Michael Caine's real life wife. Right. I saw that afterwards. Shakira Kane. Shakira Kane. So I looked up on Wikipedia. So he had seen her on a Maxwell House coffee commercial. <laughs> and he got her number from her agent and he called her like 10 days in a row. And she's like, no, 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 whatever. And uh-huh. then she agreed to go on a date with him or whatever. But can you imagine that you see someone on a commercial and you're like, right. I, I, you know, like I and tried you, that. You had the power to just say, I want to yeah. date her. <laughs> I tried that years ago with Flo from Progressive. And <laughs> Didn't work out. I got nowhere. I don't know what to tell you. But I, just reading that, I thought that was such a cool thing of like, really? You can do that? <laughs> yeah. And they're still married. I mean, they've been married since like 1973 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, unbelievable. You know? Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, I, I wondered, um, actually, I looked her up too because I wondered if they had met on this movie. But um, they had met previous, and you know, I guess she got the part because it was Michael Caine's wife, and she was beautiful, and right, a good actor. Right, and yeah, and she had the good look, the look for that. That you know, because it's funny because I remember seeing Around the World in Eighty Days, uh-huh. and at one point they're in India, and uh, David Niven meets this Indian princess, and it's Shirley MacLaine, and you're like, wait, <laughs> I love Shirley MacLaine. However. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, she doesn't seem that Indian to me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, those are the days when they would, uh, you know, appropriate whatever they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, but it was, it's, it's kind of cool that it, his, his wife had this memorable part, you know? Oh, totally. And then that wedding scene too was so creepy. Oh my uh, God. I mean, this movie does have, in, have some intense moments. Oh, absolutely. Uh, then I think it's sort of interesting to balance out sort of the lighter comedic parts with some really, I mean, that's a very intense scene, that wedding scene. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It could also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The movie's really very grounded. Like, those guys seem very real. Their friendship seems like they've been friends yeah. forever and they've been through everything together. And um, it's such a plausible movie for for considering what, what the stakes are and what's happening, you know? Yeah. 
um, that's what I love about it. The, it you it, you totally you go, okay, I'm with you for this ride. Because so some movies were like, oh, okay, come on, you know. But this is like, all right, I'm on board here, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a buddy comedy adventure movie. Um, what was your take on the one thing I didn't quite get my head around was this the contract they signed mm-hmm. to not uh, womanize or to not drink. Like, what what was your take on that? Why they did that? Oh, I my take was that you know they were these sort of um, delinquent soldiers for so long. Yeah. You know, my take was that they were constantly drinking and constantly womanizing, and I think that they had been. I got the impression that they've been in so much trouble and right. for years and years. So they're like, okay, we're finally going to cut it out and do and this right. Do this right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. I think that's a good read. Uh, that's the way I looked at it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Christopher Plummer's in those early scenes as Rudyard Kipling uh, and that great setup at the beginning when Michael Caine comes in unrecognizable <laughs> Uh, as Michael Caine, but you hear the voice and you're like, well, of course that's Michael Caine. Yeah. But he's got that great line though. He's kind of grotesque looking and Christopher Plummer looks at him and then kind of looks away and he goes, keep looking at me. It helps, it helps to keep my soul from flying off. (laughs) It's like such a great line. Yes. Yes. And there's this, and reading the novella, there was a lot of things you go, Oh, this is, this went right into the movie. It's usually, they take a lot of liberties with these things, but I mean, there's beautiful lines that are just in the movie, but there's also beautiful lines that they took from the story. That's like, yeah, why why would you lose that? You know? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, cool. But th- that that is a very lyrical thing to say. It's great. I love that. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was also cool how they. I mean, there's never any thought given to to this not working, uh, this crazy idea, <laughs> against all odds, even making it. To where they're trying to go, which is sort of, I guess, near what would be Afghanistan today, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the, you know, through the mountains in the winter, and like, can they even get there? And their attitude is just so casual about the whole thing. And he's got th- that other great line when uh, Christopher Plummer's Kipling is telling him kind of the story of Alexander the Great, is the last like white man who had been there uh, and left. And he said, uh, Alexander the Great. Well, if a Greek can do it, we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I love the idea that it seems like he had never heard of Alexander the Great before. <laughs> no, yeah, it definitely, <laughs> that kind of came across. Uh, I love the setting too. There's something about, I, I think, being a kid raised on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, uh, there was this great uh, war movie called The Gallipoli with Mel Gibson. Sure, sure. From when I was a kid that I watched on HBO a hundred times. There's something about the setting in this period of India and these these bazaars that they would walk through and these markets that uh, it just it, it has so much energy, I think. And it was one of the things that I loved about Raiders so much. This this land where you're a kid from Georgia, like it just seems so fantastical and interesting. And uh, the movie opens with that, with just like three or four minutes of just life there at this bazaar. And just it it has to be real footage, right? Of just the of you know people. You know, a guy putting the scorpion on his tongue and all that yeah, stuff, man. and you're like, "Oh my god!" You know, these things that <laughs> um, there's a great um, Franz Kafka story. Uh, I think it's called like the Hunger Artist or something, where uh-huh. this guy is out where he doesn't. He's on a like a hunger strike, and people are fall and people would gather to look at the guy 
as he's in public, like just sitting there not eating for forty like each day it would build up and it gets to forty days and 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 then people lose interest and start drifting away. <laughs> it's like, well, isn't not eating for fifty days more <laughs> more of an accomplishment than not right. eating for forty days? But then people are like, oh, we're bored with this, and then they've kind of filter <laughs> away. <laughs> Oh. Well, uh, the character of Billy Fish is pretty great. He is the, uh, uh, I guess, sort of soldier who serves as translator in the movie, played by Saeed Joffrey. Uh, and one of the more fun characters is sort of the third leg of of this of this duo, yeah. uh, who meets his, uh, I guess, kind of tragic uh, end. Sure, sure. But um, he's such a fun character in the movie. I think. He's so great, and I think, I get, I think he was like an Indian soldier or something who got captured, and yeah. then um, ended up just staying there, and so he, you know, speaks perfect English, and he had, you know, has affection for these British guys when they show up, and yeah, I don't think they could have done it without without him explaining what's going on or explaining, this is the local chieftain that you wanted you know, getting good with or take over his thing or whatever. He kind of guided them along the way. Um, he was a great character. I, I, I was that actor in other things that I would know. I don't know, man. Uh, he looks sort of familiar. Uh, let me see. I'm kind of looking now. Of course, he's probably one of these guys who was in hundreds of movies. I'm looking now. He was in my beautiful Andrette. He was in Gandhi. Oh, nice. Uh, and I'm sure a whole host of uh, of movies from India. Right, right. Uh, he, he's probably like their biggest actor, like in history or something. <laughs> <laughs> in Bollywood. Um, he's got one of the great lines, too, when he meets them sort of early on. And they meet Uta, the local sort of tribal leader. Sure. Uh, or king. And he says, uh, he said, I often tell Uta about Englishmen's. Uh, giving names to dogs and taking hats off at the women. <laughs> giving names to dogs. That's such a great line. <laughs> like, and I love that. It's such a cool thing of, because they're going and looking at their customs, like what are these people doing? And the idea of it, of flipping it and being like, why would you name a dog? And why would you, right. you know, and that kind of thing is so great of them looking at British customs is crazy, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it also, it does touch a little bit on some more, uh, some deeper pools of thought about cultural relativism without really kind of getting too self-serious. But there, you know, there, there is this sort of theme that runs through the whole thing about these white men coming to a Middle Eastern country who they think are savages, imposing their will on them. Uh, everything from uh, Peachy trying to train these soldiers in the British way in a scene that ends up being very funny, the one, two, three, he's <laughs> yeah. trying to get them to march and do these things, <laughs> to then sort of accepting them and working with what they have rather than trying to make them British soldiers. Yes. It's interesting, the statement it makes off and on. That's true, and it's, I think that the, the, those people, the, they kind of won them over in a way. They, they you know, I felt like... Uh, I felt like both Sean Connery and Michael Caine's character really kind of had affection for these people uh, towards the end, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. that's the whole sort of hook of that third act is when it comes time to split with the gold, they have that four months left until the, the spring thaw, I guess. And um, you kind of see it coming that 
Sean Connery is is bought in. Yeah. And he, he likes being king. He likes being king and he's like, hey, I'm like I, I feel like he's got like a he feels like he's the father to these people or something in a way. And and doesn't want to leave them. You know, wants to marry one of their women and stay there and um Yes, it is. I it, there is sort of a, a a maturation on them their part in a way. I think from where they start out, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's that great scene where he's uh, he's sort of playing judge and settling disputes between local tribes, and it's sort of in that moment I think where he really turns and and feels like you know there's a better way that you should be doing things that is more fair, more equitable. Um, but it doesn't feel like forcing the, the Western way on these people. It feels more like, Hey, you'd be smarter if you sort of did these things, uh, in a, and your tribe would be better for it. Right. Right. And I have, that's such a funny thing where there's the, you know, the guy's wife, there's a rule if your wife sleeps with, if you sleep with someone else's wife, you have to give the guy five goats or whatever. Yeah. So, So he would pawn his wife out. Yeah, and never sleep with these guys, and now he's got like forty goats because he's pimping his wife, you know. And he's like, wait yeah, a yeah. <laughs> you know, that's and the way that uh, Sean Carney is like, wait, wait, he's taking a good law and twisting it around, and then she, he makes the guy's wife sleep with X number of guys to pay off the debt or whatever. Um, it's really funny. Um, well, and that's when he starts taking it seriously, and you, you sort of see the switch when. Uh, and, and I think Houston played it tonally correct. Uh, I think if it were made today, it would be way more of a sinister feeling of like when he asked Peachy to start, like, hey, I think you should start bowing right, right. when I come in just to sort of, you know, keep up appearances. And, and Michael Caine sort of gives him that side eye, like, he's really buying into this. And when he talks about destiny, it was his destiny. I think Houston hit the right tone there, and today that would be way melodramatic and even sinister. Yes, yes, absolutely, and yes, and I think there'd be some more. It would be more heavy-handed where there that are, that racism that they come in with or something. And I think, yeah, you know, I think this really it's the subtlety of the film I, I really like. You know, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I mean, you've got two of the bigger actors of the day, and uh, and I did see, I read Pauline Kael's review from 1976. It's really, really great, super long review, and she kind of makes that same point you do of the subtlety and how John Huston feels content to just sort of sit back and let let it happen rather than try and force too many things to happen. Right, right, and it and it is an adventure story, and it is that kind of thing of. The fact that they're these ordinary guys, yeah, and they're going to go try to take over, and they've got this big plan. You know, it's it's such a cool adventure that you you know. Yeah, I mean, he he refers to himself. I can't remember the king's name. Uh, I can't remember the name, but it's you know very sort of regal, sort of Middle Eastern name, uh, and I think it's very key that their their names are Danny and Peachy. Yeah. Uh, and not like Richard and James, because every time you start to start to buy into this thing, Michael Caine comes in with that Cockney accent and calls him Dan- Danny, right, right. and he gets called Peachy in return. And it's sort of this constant reminder to to them and to the audience, I think, of who these guys are. Yes, and I love when 
you know, in the beginning, before they go, before they leave in their adventure, they get caught and they get in trouble. And uh, the, the local official calls them detriments or whatever. Right, and, right. You know, and then um, they were saying, we decided to leave the country. And it's like, well, I, and the Kipling character is like, I'm pretty sure you were asked to leave. Right. The <laughs> There's such a great comic duo. The, the one part where, uh, you know, they're not supposed to be womanizing. And the, the, the naked temptress comes in and disrobes in front of uh, Peachy. And he's just sort of babbling about like, you know, not supposed to be doing this. And then Sean Connery comes in, Danny comes in and immediately puts an end to it. And Michael Caine's line is, Danny, thank God you arrived. (laughs) (laughs) But by all accounts, they do stay, I guess, celibate. I mean, they don't break that contract. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like. And it does seem, and they don't drink. And you get the feeling that these guys, this is like a big departure for these guys of what they have yeah. past, you know? Um, well, and their success follows. Yep. Uh, because they do succeed in kind of most everything they do. Um, and you, you actually get sort of sad when you know, they're going to split up and, and Peachy's like, I'm leaving. Yeah. And Danny says, I'm not. Yep. And, uh, he tries to talk him into it, but you, you, you know, that it can, uh, it's not going to end well at that point, I think. Well, I also have, I, I love British actors, you know, I feel like they're, yeah. they're always seem to be classically trained and they're so many of our American actors are sort of personality actors. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. like I love Bruce Willis, but he's Bruce Willis in every movie and he's just kind yeah. of being Bruce Willis. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, for sure. And these guys that they really, they know their craft so well. Um, I, I don't know. I always, I, I just think they're great, you know? Yeah, and boy, Connery was just. Uh, there's one of the lines from uh, Pauline Kael, which you should, uh, you probably appreciate, is uh, she talks about his lack of hairpiece, which I guess he wore a lot back then. She says uh, Connery plays this role without his usual hairpieces, and undisguised and bare domed, he seems larger, more free. If baldness ever needed redeeming, he's done it for all time. <laughs> well, I'm sure that part of my, me going wait. You can be a leading man as a bald guy. This this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> well, Connery, Bruce Willis. Sure. You know, there was a um, a famous story when he was a young man where he, somebody recommended him to Hitchcock to star in, was it Marnie? There's some Hitchcock movie that, that mm-hmm. you know, so somebody recommended him to Hitchcock and the two guys are in the meeting and the guy's like, oh, here he comes now. And Hitchcock looks out the window and sees Connery walking down the street and goes, yeah, he'll do. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's so charismatic, this handsome. But I just love that. It's just, just seeing him walk down the street, go, okay, yeah, let's put this guy in my movie. You know, let's let him stay yeah, in my movie. Of course. You know? Well, he just had that gravitas. And, uh, absolutely. It was so sad. To, I mean, we lost him just, just last year, right? Yeah. 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 That was such a big loss. He had such gravitas. And, um, in this movie, you know, he's clearly going to be the one. He takes that arrow in that first battle, which becomes sort of, they eventually give him a golden arrow. It becomes sort of his riding crop that he carries around or a scepter. And um, they really fall into their roles. Like Michael, uh, Peachy is, uh, seems content to slide in there as the number two, because in his mind, he 
he's, they're just biding their time until they can get out of there. But Connery buys into it. It's a really interesting thing. It does. And for Peachy, it's just, it's just another one of their scams, but it's just a bigger one. Yeah. You know? Um, but you did feel like, you do feel like those actors, I don't know if they personally, they just, they just seem to like it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you believe their friendship so much. And I don't know if they, what they were like personally together, but, um, you, you know, my friend always talks about in that, is it, you've got mail where it's Tom, Tom Hanks and, um, Dave Chappelle are best friends. And it's like, you know, they're 30 years apart. Yeah, that was a pretty odd pairing. These yeah. two seem like, like it would really break my heart if I read that behind the scenes, Connery and Kane hated each other yeah. or something yeah. like that. I, I agree. I agree. You really want that thing of no, no, no. They, they had this bond or something, you know, no I know that at any. some point, uh, who else was it? It was Peter O'Toole. God, I want to say Lawrence Olivier were also, I know it was Peter O'Toole, and I can't remember the other, but were also kind of cast as the two leads. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, after Gable and Bogart. But um, I don't know. It, it just feels like it was meant to be with these guys. Yeah, I, I didn't know about these other um, these other attempts or whatever. But um, yeah, I, this and this is one I'm so glad because there are movies that I loved when I was young and then I watch now and go, oh, my God. I was a moron. You know yeah. I mean? um, but I, I love it when a movie holds up and you're like, yep, you know what? This is, uh, this is still great, you know? Yeah, it definitely holds up. And I think as you get older, there are probably other things you can read into it. Uh, lessons about greed and, uh, like I mentioned before, cultural relativism and um, colonialism. Yep. Uh, yep. You know, being the conquering white men in pith helmets. Uh, probably would have been lost on me as a oh, in my young twenties. Absolutely, absolutely. But I do think there are certain things that work on different levels, and there are things that I didn't think about when I saw it in my young twenties that I think about now. But yeah. I, but I could still appreciate it then and now too. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then that ending, you know, the inevitable conclusion. You know, you know, it's over when he in the wedding scene he bleeds, and they're like, "You're not a god," and. He's sort of delusional at that point uh, th yeah. that he can sort of uh, keep his reign going yeah. in, this, in the face of being found out. Um, hard not to kind of think about what's going on in the news these days Yeah, that's true. about the delusional king. But <laughs> Michael Caine is by his side. It's like the jig is up, mate. Yeah. Like, like we got to get out of here. And they start closing in on them. And, you know, they have a handful of guns. But when you have... 700 guys coming at you you're you're with rocks you're dead oh absolutely and that's also he and it's the same line is in the story where he goes the slut bit me and it's like you know yeah. you're marrying this virgin right. who whatever who doesn't <laughs> want to say, i don't think she's a slut i don't know what to tell you no that was a weird line that was. it's like you're forcing yourself on this woman she's scared to death of you yeah because she thinks uh sleeping with a god will kill her yes yeah, yeah. Um, but and it's Michael Caine's wife. <laughs> absolutely, and I was shocked to see that was the line in the story. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that word was around back then. Yeah, no, me neither. Me neither. And it was completely inappropriately used. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a shocking uh, amount of um, or a lack of blood, and there, you know, there are a lot of big fight scenes. But you know, like I said, it'd be way bloodier today and yes. more sort of gory and in your face. There are a lot of battle scenes, but you just see sort of 
swinging of swords and things. Uh, you don't actually see anyone. You know, it's a pretty tame movie. Yes, yes. And you, you do feel like the battle scenes seem sort of oddly realistic in terms of what like a primitive battle would have looked like a thousand years ago or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, for sure. Or, yeah. Uh, and that, that bridge scene at the end is just brutal. I mean, these guys, mm -hmm. they know it's over. And for a movie that sort of danced on the lines of uh, comic relief all throughout it, it, it has a really heavy ending. It, it does. It does. You know, a man going to his noble death uh, and singing that song is just... And like waiting <laughs> as they chop that yeah. rope bridge down. Yeah. And yelling at them to hurry up, you know. And, yeah, God, yeah. it was just, it was brutal to watch. And that fall, that fall, that endless fall that he has, it's like... Uh, it looked really real. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that uh, that you watched it and we got to talk about this. Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, Peachy ending up crucified at coming back around to the explanation of why he looked the way he did. Uh, it was just tough, man. I, I didn't expect it to end on in such a brutal way. Yeah, yeah. But it was almost like the inevitable ending, though, you know? Yeah, I think so. Uh, great movie, man. I, I, it, it's been on my list forever. It's, uh, you know, every review I read from back then, it was just four stars. I think it got four Academy Award nominations. Good, good. I'm uh, some of the legends of the business worked on it. The great Edith Head uh, oh, did yeah, the costuming. yeah. And um, I think I don't think anyone won the Academy Award, but she was certainly nominated, along with John Huston. Right. I mean, the fact that I know her name and she's a costume designer, like you have to achieve yeah. a certain you know what level <laughs> do you have to get at that she's a household name. You know, she must have been amazing. Yeah, well, I remember when I worked as a PA in LA um, at the Universal Building, I would do a lot of costumer runs. And the, the wardrobe building was the Edith Head building. Wow. And so that's why I always knew her name. I was right, like, oh, right, you get a, right. the Universal Costumer Department is named after you. Then, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're a legend. <laughs> uh, well, good stuff, man. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's so, uh, uh, it's, I'm, I'm honored to be part of this. Yeah, I wish we could have uh, done it in person. I know we we've talked about it for a long time about when uh, on my one of my LA trips, but it kind of got to the point with uh, the lockdown where I was just like, yeah. we just need to get you on here well, any way we can. You, you can't do anything in person these days, so I know. I know. <laughs> I, I talk to my kids over Zoom, and and they're living at home, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Brian Kylie. And right. uh, where can people follow you on Twitter and oh, anything they can else you follow want to plug? Me, uh, I'm at Kylie Noodles. Uh, Conan, okay. Conan calls me noodles. So um, that's where I got that. And then I'm on Instagram at uh, Brian Kylie comic. Oh, cool. Uh, I just got on Instagram semi recently. So I'll, I'll yeah, I'm pretty new to it too. Actually. My daughter's like, what? It, that's not a post. That should be part of your story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Emily tells me that stuff too. I don't know the difference. No me <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was great to hook up with Brian. Uh, it was fun to pick his brain about comedy and and writing jokes and what that's like and being a joke machine. Um, pretty astounding and a very cool job that he's done exceptionally well for many, many years. Uh, one of the best in the business, if not the best. So big thanks to Brian for coming on and, and sharing that insight, for having such a great talk on The Man Who Would Be King and for being so kind to me over the years. So big thanks to Brian. And thanks to you all for listening, and uh, we will see you next week. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown, edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson, and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.